take a Bible out. We're going to look at a number of passages this morning, but the main passage we're eventually going to land on is Psalm 139. I'm going to put most of these verses up on the screen, but that's one I'm not going to put on the screen, and so I'd like you to find it in your copy of the Scriptures, Psalm 139. There is an outline in the bulletin where you can track along with some of the things that we're going to talk about. Uh, At the beginning of 2020, uh, we started this series, The Character of God. We spent the first nine Sundays in 2020 talking about the character and the attributes of God. And these are the things that we talked about, God's holiness, God's self-existence, His sovereignty, His goodness, faithfulness, power, patience, wrath, and love. And as I thought about the last year, I thought that's how we started 2020. The year was so fantastic for all of us. Why don't we just start 2021 in the exact same way? And so we're going to hit repeat, not because last year was so great, but just because I think it's a good thing at the beginning of a new year to stop and to evaluate your own life, your own spiritual relationship with the Lord, to remind yourselves, to remind ourselves who God is. And so we've talked about these attributes. This year we're going to spend four Sundays and we're going to talk about God's omniscience, His omnipresence, His eternity, and His wisdom. I'm going to start with a quote from A.W. Tozer. This is on your handout and I'm going to put it on the screen. This is from Tozer's book, Knowledge of the Holy. He says, to say that God is omniscient is to say that he possesses perfect knowledge and therefore has no need to learn, but it's more, it is to say that God has never learned and cannot learn. The actual word omniscience is made up of two Latin root words. I'm no Latin scholar, but the two words are omni and scientia. Omni in Latin means all. Scientia, where we get the word science, means knowledge. And so when we say that God is omniscient or that he has the characteristic of omniscience, we are saying that God has all knowledge. God is, to use Tozer's phrase, perfect in knowledge. Now, we could leave it there. We could just say he has all knowledge, but I want to just ask you to think about some of the things that fall under that heading, God has all knowledge. First of all, God knows himself, and he knows himself perfectly. This is really more remarkable than you may think at first glance or at first thought. When you think about the fact that God is infinite, when you think about the fact that God is eternal, When you think about all the attributes of God that we could come up with and put on a list, to think that God knows himself perfectly is a remarkable thought because of who God is. It's also a remarkable thought because I think if you're honest and you stop and think about it with me, you'd have to agree, you'd have to admit, we don't know ourselves perfectly. None of us. Sometimes things come out of your mouth or my mouth And they come out, and you hear it, and you think, where did that come from? Maybe you know where it came from. But sometimes you think, where did that come from? I didn't didn't know that I was thinking that or feeling that or had the capacity to say 
something like that. In the United States, people pay mental health professionals an awful lot of money. I'm not mocking this. I'm just saying it's a reality. We pay mental health professionals a lot of money to help us understand ourselves. Because we look at our own life situation and we say, I I can't really make sense of this right now. I'm not really sure how I ought to think about this or feel about this. We love musicians, songwriters, and storytellers. Why? Because when you listen to a a well-written song or you read a well-written novel or you watch a well-written show on TV, if it's done rightly, you watch it and you think, I can relate to that. I've been through that. I've felt that way. And maybe when you hear it in a song or you see it on TV or you read it on the page, maybe you didn't even realize that you felt a certain way about a certain thing. But when you read other people going through it or you hear about other people going through something similar, there's something where a light bulb goes off, the bells go off, and you say, oh, I didn't even realize that about myself. We don't know ourselves perfectly, but God knows himself Perfectly. Secondly, God knows creation perfectly, all of it. Again, this is a really remarkable thought. I was on social media this week, earlier in the week, and I saw a picture of the earth, a picture of a globe. And in the post that I saw, the earth was spinning really, really fast, so fast it was a little disorienting. When you read the description of the post, the earth was spinning seven and a half times every second. And the little gif, the earth spinning around on repeat, was to remind you that that's how fast light travels around the earth. 186,282 miles per hour, which is seven and a half times around the earth every second. That's how fast light moves. And the spinning earth was there to show you that's fast. If you didn't know that that's fast, that's fast. It's so fast that scientists, when they measure really big things, they quit talking about miles and they talk about light years. And it's a measure of distance, not time. It's a measure of distance to say how far could light travel over the course of a year traveling at 186,282 miles an hour. Guess what? It's a long way. It's a really long way. And if you start on planet Earth, and you just go out from earth in virtually any direction, light years out. Not like past the atmosphere, not like past the moon, but light years out. Thousands of light years out. Hundreds of thousands of light years out. Millions of light years out. Way out. At some point, you bump into a giant burning ball of gas in virtually any direction. That's because scientists estimate that in the known universe, there are 100,000 million stars. I have no clue what that number means. I didn't even try to crunch it this week to tell you that's 37 zeros or 77 zeros or 400 zeros. It's a lot of zeros. It's a really big number. There's a lot of stars. I don't even understand what the number means. The Bible says not only does God know what the number means but he knows the name of every star. Look what the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, and the these is the heavens, the stars, these giant balls of burning gas, millions and millions and millions of light years away out there. Who created these? Well, it's he who brings out their host by 
number. All 100,000 million of them. He knows the number. And he calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He knows them perfectly. Not only does he know the big stuff in the universe perfectly, the visible stuff, the stuff you can see with the telescope, he also knows the hidden things perfectly. I'll just put a few verses on the screen. Maybe you can jot down a few of these and look them up. First Samuel 16, 1 Kings 8, 1 Chronicles 28, Jeremiah, Luke, Revelation. All of those verses say essentially the same thing. They say that God looks on the heart. I can't do that, and neither can you. I know we'd all like to think that we can judge other people's hearts and motives, We'd like to look at other people and say, oh, I know why she said that. I know why he did that. We think we know other people's hearts, but the reality is we don't. We can't. The Bible says God does, and he can. He looks on the heart. He sees our heart. He knows the hidden things that maybe no one else in our lives know. He knows the number of the stars and all of their names, and he knows the secrets of our heart that no one else knows. He knows himself. He knows all of creation, and the Bible says very clearly he knows the past, the present, and the future, and he knows all of them perfectly. The past, the present, and the future. We'll just think about each of those for a second. Over the last couple years, uh, I have received a lot of teasing in my own home for being forgetful. We'll sit around the dining room table or the breakfast table and Someone will start to tell a story. Hey, do you remember when? And they'll go into it. And everyone will look at me, and I've got this puzzled look on my face. And then everyone else rolls their eyes collectively. And they say, Dad, you don't remember anything. I don't know if that happens to you, but that happens to me. My kids tell stories. My wife tells stories. And I say, I have absolutely no memory of that. Well, you were there. You said it. You did it. I don't remember. I don't remember. I know there's times when my my kids were littler and they say something or they do something and it's so cute and I didn't save it on Facebook to have a memory of it every year and I think I'm going to remember this forever. I will never forget this. And guess what? I forget it. I don't remember the past perfectly. God does. He's never had that moment around the dining table of heaven where somebody says, hey, do you remember when... And God says, huh? Was I there for that? He knows the past perfectly. He knows the present perfectly. Look, COVID and masks haven't made this any easier, but have you ever had the experience where you're out in the grocery store, you're out at Rosa's, and you see somebody, and you look at them, and they kind of look at you, and you have that awkward moment of, do we keep looking at each other or do we not? I had it last night. I was out, and I looked at someone, and they kind of looked at me, and I thought, I think I know them. I can't remember their name. I don't have a clue. So that's when you say, hey, buddy, how are you? How's the family? You're fishing, right? How's work? And maybe they give you something at some point, and you say, oh, now I remember. We don't even know the present perfectly. God knows it perfectly. Perfectly. He knows the past perfectly. He knows the present perfectly. He knows the future perfectly. Wouldn't we like to know the future perfectly? I don't know that we would, but we think we would. 
we'd like to be like Biff in Back to the Future 2. You remember Back to the Future 2? Biff ends up with the Gray's Sports Almanac. And he takes it back in time, and he knows who's going to win all the football games, who's going to win all the horse races, who's going to win all these sports competitions. And he uses it to bet on all these games because he knows who the winner's going to be. And time after time after time, bet after bet after bet, he wins, and he amasses this fortune. And we watch that, and we say, man, if only I had a flux capacitor, I could go into the future get the gray sports almanac, bring it back in time, bet on all these games, I would know the outcome. This would be really handy for Dallas Cowboy fans, right? Because at the beginning of every Dallas Cowboys football season, every Dallas Cowboy football fan says, this is our year. We're going to the Super Bowl. ESPN picked us first. Do you know why ESPN picks us first every year? It's because you and I are dumb enough to keep watching when they say it. They get our attention. They get our clicks, and we say, we got a chance. Dak's going to be back. We're going to be healthy. we got a new defensive coordinator. Everything's in place. It's going to be great. We're going to win. And guess what? All throughout that season, it's misery. It's misery, and you get to the end, and you think you have a sliver of hope left, and you realize, I have no hope. If you knew the future, you could take more naps on Sunday. You say, we don't have a chance to win. Why am I watching this? It doesn't matter. We don't know the future. There's a million things that we can't predict. God knows the future. He knows the past perfectly. He knows the present perfectly. He knows the future perfectly. I want to acknowledge that there are some people in today's world who claim to be Christians who agree that he knows the past perfectly and the present perfectly, but they say he doesn't know the future perfectly. This system of thought is called, on a popular level, open theism. Open theism. Open theism wrongly teaches that God doesn't know the future with absolute certainty. The word open is a reference to the idea that the future is open. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Now, I put in there, they wrongly teach this, right? Their attempt is somewhat noble or their aim is somewhat noble. What they're trying to do is to get God off the hook for all the bad things that happen in life. And rather than listen to what the Bible says about God's sovereignty and his knowledge and his power, they just say, look, the reason bad things happen is that God didn't know they were going to happen. He knows the past perfectly, he knows the present perfectly, but he doesn't know the future perfectly. And they say something like, you know, it hasn't happened, it's in the future, it's not knowable at all, so therefore God doesn't know the future. It's open theism. I'll be honest with you, I've read a number of these guys, their books, and some of them are really intelligent, some of them are really thoughtful, some of them raise some really interesting questions, but at the end... All of them fail to listen to the plain teaching of the Bible. For example, like Isaiah 46, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. This is one of the things that makes God unique. The one of a kind, holy God. He declares the end from the beginning. He doesn't guess, and that's what open theism tells you, that God guesses. And look, the open theists, they tell you God's a really good guesser. He guesses right most of the time. After all, he knows the past perfectly. You don't. 
He knows the present perfectly. You don't. And so his guesses are way more informed than yours. But Isaiah doesn't say he is the best guesser in the universe. Isaiah says he declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Not, odds are I'm going to guess right here. Not, you know, there's a really good chance that what I'm guessing is going to come about. But he just says, I declare the end from the beginning, the things from ancient times, even now in the present. My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. And then he gives a specific example in the life of God's people in Isaiah's day, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. I've spoken. I will bring it to pass. I purposed. I will do it. Not Odds are it's going to go this way. I will accomplish my purpose, and this is what will happen. He knows the past. He knows the present. He certainly, according to Scripture, knows the future. Now, one more little caveat I want to throw out just to make you think. The Bible occasionally describes God with something called anthropomorphic language. And while the Bible does that, you need to understand that God never, he never, discovers, learns, wonders, or forgets. Sometimes in describing God, the Bible almost makes it sound like he might discover or learn or wonder or forget. But in those instances, the Bible's using anthropomorphic language. You say, what in the world is that? This is what it is. Mickey Mouse. Disney is the master of anthropomorphic characters. You look at that picture on the screen and you say, what is Mickey Mouse? He's a mouse, right? It's in his name, Mickey Mouse. He's a mouse. But he's a mouse that walks on two feet and wears yellow inflatable shoes. And you can't really see it in this picture, but it's true in other pictures, and you can kind of see it. He has thumbs, opposable thumbs. And he talks, and he sings, and he dances, and he has a theme song. I know it because I hear it in my house all the time. And he dates and he has a girlfriend named Minnie Mouse. That's all human stuff. But he's a mouse. He's an anthropomorphic character. Disney does this to entertain you, right? The Bible doesn't do it to entertain you. But the Bible does use this kind of language about God to help you understand true things about God. The Bible will say things like God saved his people from slavery in Egypt with his strong right hand. The Bible also says God's a spirit and he doesn't have a body. So how does he have a hand? Well, it's anthropomorphic language. It's saying God has power. And one of the ways you understand that as a human being is the idea of a a strong arm or a strong hand. The Bible uses language like this in a number of places as it's talking about God's relationship with his people. I'll give you a few examples that can be confusing. Genesis 11. The Bible says as the Tower of Babel was being built that the Lord God said, let's go down and see the tower. Why did he need to go down and see it? Could he not see it from the cheap seats? Would he have bad tickets up in heaven? Binoculars weren't powerful enough. Tell us, why did he need to go down and see it? It almost makes it sound like he didn't know what was going on and he had to go check it out. There's a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 43, where God says to his people, I won't remember your sins anymore. You say, well, I thought you said God couldn't forget. But God 
told his people he's going to forget their sins. He's not going to remember their sins. How does that fit with he knows everything? There's a passage in the book of Jeremiah. Israel has committed a terrible, terrible, terrible sin, one in particular, and God's talking about that sin, and God says to his people through Jeremiah, it never entered my mind that you would do such a thing. You say, well, it sounds like he was surprised. Sounds like he didn't see it coming. Sounds like it caught him off guard. Look, all these sorts of passages are using anthropomorphic language to talk about God. When Genesis says that he went down to see the tower, it's not that he couldn't see it from heaven. It's actually making fun of the men building the tower. They thought they had this big, grand tower reaching into the heavens. And God says, yeah, I'm going to have to come down and look at that little thing. Isn't that cute? When Isaiah says he's going to not remember your sins, it doesn't mean like the experience you have at Rose's where you can't recall somebody's name and it's on the tip of your tongue. It's not like God says, you know, I can't remember the sin that he or she committed yesterday. What was it? It's right there. No, it means that he's not going to count your sins against you. He's not going to hold them against you. When Jeremiah says that this never entered the Lord's mind that you would commit that sin, it doesn't mean that he didn't see it coming. It doesn't mean that he didn't know the future. What it's saying is that was not God's desire for his people. He did not want them to commit that sin. None of these passages contradict the the idea that God knows everything. And the clearest passage in the Bible that speaks to God's omniscience is Psalm 139. The theme of Psalm 139 for our purposes is very, very simple. Here it is. God knows everything about us. He knows everything about us. Take your copy of the scriptures. Look at Psalm 139. Let's just walk through some of these verses together. The title of this psalm says, To the Choir Master, a Psalm of David. So King David wrote it, and he wrote it to be sung congregationally in Israel. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and rise up. Guess what? You've done that like four times since we've been in this room. Stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. God knows. He knows how many times you're going to do it before we leave. Something as simple as standing up and sitting down. God knows that. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Right? God is exalted in the heavens. He's transcendent. He's our creator. He's above us. And yet he knows, he discerns our thoughts. The Lord looks on the heart. We talked about that earlier. You search out my path and my lying down when you take a nap this afternoon. God knows. He knows how long you're going to sleep. He knows your kids are going to interrupt your nap and you're going to be cranky about it. He knows the phone's going to ring and you're going to wish you had put it on silent. He knows you're lying down. He says, you're acquainted with all my ways. That's an awful broad, big category. Lord, you know all my ways. There's not anything that I can hide from you. Look at verse 4. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows every word that comes out of your mouth before your vocal cords even start to vibrate. He knows it. He has perfect knowledge. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't attain it. The things that God knows are beyond what we have the capacity to know. 
the psalmist looks at this and he says, I don't even know how to begin to think about the fact that you have perfect knowledge, that you know all things. Look what the psalmist says beginning in verse 13. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Look, what God knows is our sitting down and our rising up and our laying down and our words and all our ways. And he says, that is what God knows. What do I know? I know that God is wonderful. I don't grasp the whole scope of that. I can't get my arms around everything. He can get his arms around, but he is wonderful. Look what he says in verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. It wasn't hidden. God saw it. It was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Listen to verse 16. In your book were written every one of them. Every one of what? The days that were formed for me. When were they written? When as yet there was none of them. That's more anthropomorphic language. You're not to imagine that God has a really big library up in heaven and he's got physical books and he can pull them down. He's using language to help us understand something about God. And he says, look, you know all the days of my life before they ever happened. All of them. You know them. You have perfect knowledge. 25,724. It's about 70 years plus a little bit. I had a friend lives in the eastern part of the United States. He passed away this last week. That's how old he was, 25,724 days. His son this last week put a post on social media with that number and a reference to Psalm 139. And he was not referencing Psalm 139 to say, man, I really wish dad had 25,725 days. He wasn't trying to say, I wish dad had 26,000 days. He wasn't trying to say, I wish dad had 30,000 days. He was simply saying, my dad's days were up and God took him home. God knew. No one else knew. It was pretty much a surprise to everyone else, but it wasn't a surprise to the Lord. Look what the psalmist says. In your book were written every one of the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. God knew my friend's days 71 years ago. He knew them long before 1950. He knew them in eternity past. He knows your days. They're in his book. He has perfect knowledge of the past and the present and the future. This is a remarkable truth. It's a remarkable truth. Look how the psalmist sums it up in verse 17 and 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. How big, how vast is the total of the thoughts of God. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. The psalmist doesn't say your thoughts are more than 100,000 million. But he looks around for something as a comparison point, and he says, sand. There's an awful lot of it when I look around. We live in West Texas. We have sand, a lot of it. It blows all the time. There's a lot of sand out here. And the psalmist says, God's thoughts are more than that. 
more than the grains of sand. He knows everything about his people. You stop to think about what God knows and the perfection of his knowledge and the vastness of his knowledge. This is a remarkable thing to think about. It's not just something that ought to tickle your brain and say, well, that's interesting. This is something that ought to change the way that you live your life. And so we'll end with this question. How should we live in light of God's omniscience? Number one, we should be in awe of God. When you think about the fact that his knowledge is perfect and what that means and what it entails, we should be in awe of God. Stephen referenced Job, chapter 1. Man, Job started off gangbusters. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's right where we want to live. But when you keep reading in the book of Job, he begins to question God. He begins to be a bit mouthy with God. He begins to demand that God come down and give an answer for what's going on in his life. And in the end, he gets what he's been asking for and he realizes it isn't what he wants at all. Because when God actually comes down and shows up, It's not to answer any of Job's questions. He doesn't get any of his questions answered. What he gets is his awe back. Look what God says when he shows up. Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and he said, his answer was a question. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Did God not know who it was? Why did he ask who? Of course he knew who it was. He showed up and he talked to the right guy. The question isn't to find out information. The question is to press something home to Job. He says, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Job, you know so much. Why don't you tell me some things? For starters, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And this line of questioning goes on and on and on. And Job tries to stop it, and it goes on and on and on. And in the end, when God quits questioning Job, Job says, I don't know what I'm talking about. I spoke about things that are too wonderful for me to even begin to understand. And I repent in dust and ashes. God answered zero of Job's questions. He did give Job his sense of awe back. When you think about what God knows, the perfection of his knowledge, you and I should feel awe. Secondly, if you're not a Christian, you should feel terror. Terror. Psalm 33, Proverbs 15, Ecclesiastes 12, Jeremiah 16. All of these verses tell us that God knows every secret thing. Every secret thing. He knows it. It is not hard for a parishioner to pull one over on their pastor. That's not hard. You can fool me easily. It's not all that hard for you to fool your friends, your co-workers. It's not all that hard for you to fool your spouse or your kids or your parents. It's not that hard for you to keep things from other people that only you know. It's not difficult. All of us do it. And the Bible simply reminds us that God knows every secret thing. Look what Ecclesiastes 12 says. God will bring every 
deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. We put on a front to the world and we try to look respectable and moral and nice and kind and all the rest. God sees every secret thing and he will bring every secret thing into judgment. If you are not a Christian, that truth should terrify you. You can fool everyone in your life. You cannot fool the Lord. Now, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't feel terror. You should feel hope. That's number three. The Christian should feel hope. The non-Christian stands before the all-seeing, all-knowing God, and they are completely exposed, and they ought to feel terror. The believer stands before the all-knowing, all-seeing God and ought to feel hope. That hope is rooted in the gospel, and that gospel hope is expressed in a passage like Romans 5.8 that says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You understand that you don't even know the depths of your own sin the way God does. You don't even know and haven't explored all the deep, dark corners of your heart and your motivations and your thoughts the way the Lord has. He knows us perfectly. We don't even know ourselves perfectly. He knows everything about us. He knows our sin. He knows the horror of it. He knows the the grossness of it, the weightiness of it, the shame of it, the guilt of it. He knows it past, present, and future. He knows all of it. Yet the Bible says, while we were still sinners... God shows love for us, and he sends his son to die for us. If you're a Christian, there is absolutely zero chance that anyone will ever rat you out to God. No one is going to go to God, Satan included, with any dirt that would somehow disqualify you as his child. He knows it already, perfectly, all of it. No one's going to rat you out. There's no scenario In your life, if you're a Christian, where God's going to have a realization someday, oh man, I'm really sick of this guy or this gal. I clearly have made a mistake here. He knows you, everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, all of it. You and I are not living in our relationship with the Lord. We're not living in some dopey teenage drama. Right? Teenage dramas all have the same plot. In the beginning, you've got boy, girl, they get together, they meet. There's this romance that started, but there's a secret. There's always a secret. Somebody doesn't know something. And the movie goes on and things get better and better and you're rooting for this budding romance. And then at some point, the secret comes out and the whole thing falls apart. And if it's a sad ending, it ends falling apart. If it's a happy ending, they come back together somehow. You're not in that kind of story where some secret is going to come out in the end that's going to ruin the whole thing. God doesn't lack any knowledge about who you are or how bad you are or how sinful you are in the past, in the present, or in the future. And while we were still sinners, Christian, God showed love for us and he sent Jesus to die for us. The logic of the book of Romans, if you'll keep reading, is if God has done that for us while we were sinners, there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from his love. He knew us at our worst and he loved us and he sent his son to die for us. One last thought. The Christian should not worry. The Christian should not worry. 
for several years now, our youngest daughter, Amelia, really wanted a bunny. Really wanted a bunny. We have a black lab named Oakley, and I just thought, we don't need a bunny. Oakley will eat that thing, and bunnies are gross. We don't need a bunny. And I held strong for like seven months. And then one day, we brought this thing home. Yeah, he's sweet. Arlo. Arlo. My wife reminds me regularly that Arlo, like all bunnies, is a prey animal. That doesn't mean that he's really good at talking to the Lord every morning and night. That means he lives his life thinking that you're about to eat him. That's how he lives. And look, our house is relatively chill. Arlo relaxes and stretches out and he climbs on his little hotel thing and he runs around his cage and he eats his food and he'll let you hold him. But every now and then he gets in his mind that you're about to eat him. He just gets this sense of, I'm dead. They're going to eat me for dinner or breakfast or lunch or all of it, whatever. And he just starts running and his pen is not that big. He doesn't have that where to run. So he just runs straight into the cage. And it doesn't take much to set him off. I wake up in the mornings. I'm the first one awake usually. I sit in the living room. I do my Bible reading on a good morning. I miss mornings, but on a good morning, I'm doing my Bible reading. And it doesn't take but just a turn of the page. And there's Arlo in the next room acting like I'm about to eat him. He just starts running. He starts banging into things. He's terrified. This is a worried creature. And I laugh at him. And then I think about myself, and I think, you know, I'm a lot more like this stupid bunny than I'd like to admit. I mean, I think everything's going well, everything's great, life is good, and then I get one Fox News alert, and I'm running into the cage, and I'm terrified. Somebody sends me a text message. I didn't know they were going to send me that, and it just sets me off, and I'm, I, it's all going to fall apart. What's going to happen? Right? I mean, it doesn't take much for me or for you, to worry, to be anxious, to be afraid. Jesus knew that you and I, human beings, struggled with worry. He knew that we're like rabbits. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus was talking to a group of people. They were worried about food and clothing. They were terrified of food and clothing. They weren't going to have it. And Jesus said, look, 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 look. God clothes the fields, the flowers and the grass. God feeds the birds. He gives them what they need. You're way more valuable than grass and birds. Look what Jesus says. He connects our anxiety and God's omniscience, his knowledge. Your heavenly Father knows He knows that you need food and clothing. He's not surprised that you need something to eat and something to wear. You need a roof over your head. He knows what you need. Your father has perfect knowledge. He knows what you need. Just a couple of chapters later in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking to more worried people, anxious people, fearful people. These people aren't worried about food and clothing. These people are worried about rejection and persecution. 
Maybe you've worried about that in the last six months. Maybe you worry about that going into the next year. Persecution, rejection, because we follow Jesus. Jesus looked at these people and he said, look, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? They're relatively worthless, the sparrows. But not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He knows when a sparrow falls. His knowledge is perfect. If he knows when a sparrow falls, he knows what you're dealing with in your life. He says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. He knows everything about you. He knows what the grass needs. He knows what the birds need. He knows when the birds fall. And he's your father. And his knowledge is perfect. You don't have to worry. Look, this is a remarkable truth. When you think about everything that God knows, you ought to be awestruck. You ought to be in awe of who he is, how big he is, how vast his knowledge is, and how small we are and how little we are. If you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you think about the fact that God knows every secret thing and will bring it into judgment, you should be terrified. That doesn't end well for any of us. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you put your trust in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, that he paid the price for your sins on the cross, you can have hope. The hope you have isn't that you can be good enough to earn your way with God. The hope you have is that God knew you at your worst and he showed love for you and he sent his son to die for you. And if that's true and you have that gospel hope, you certainly, I certainly should not be given to worry and fear and anxiety because your father knows what you need. Your father knows you. He knows everything about you.